I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you? I'm doing well as well. I'm very busy. So this week is like every single evening I am committed to something. And luckily this commitment is one of my favorite commitments. Yes. We talked a couple weeks ago about how this is going to be a very busy like winter and early spring for the both of us. More to come on that. Yeah. But yes, very busy weeks, but very excited to be here talking to you today about masculinity as part of our, I kind of see this as kind of part of our ongoing discussions about gender and patriarchy and what it means to be a person under the patriarchy in Shakespeare's time. Right. We've talked about this with Twelfth Night, with King Lear, with Hamlet a little bit, and with Titus Andronicus most recently, we talked about what it meant to be a girl in Shakespeare's time and kind of were taking that and reversing the point of view today to talk what it meant to be a boy or a man in Shakespeare's time, um, which we will learn were two very different things. Yes. And I will say looking for articles and book chapters on this particular topic, patriarchy, masculinity, manhood, I found that there's so much exploration about femininity being a woman 
in the Shakespeare studies world. And it was quite difficult for me to find an article that was relevant to what we were talking about. Like, I will preface my sources from 1997. And it's a really great journal article. But I'm sure if scholars out there studying manhood and and masculinity that's more current, I would love to know that. Yeah. I had a few more current articles, but they were more hyper-focused on specific aspects of masculinity. And the reason why we want to talk about this with regards to Romeo and Juliet is because there's a lot of depictions of masculinity and a bit of a discussion about what it means to be a boy and be a man in this play, as well as, you know, people debate a recent trend towards assuming Romeo is is an adult man, Mm. like online. Don't know where it comes from, but he's definitely... He's a teenager. He's definitely a teenager. He's about the same age as Juliet, maybe a year or two older. Yeah. Part of the reason why we wanted to explore this was because of the character of Romeo, who is not quite a boy, not quite a man in his depiction and how Shakespeare writes him. But he's also in that transition age where boys become men, Mm -hmm. teenagers become men. And that's really, I think, pivotal in understanding his character and what he, Mercutio, Benvolio, Tybalt, what they're all experiencing, I think, is tied into this transitional period that Romeo is experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Yeah. With that, Courtney, start us off with your research, which focused on kind of these definitions of masculinity during the early modern period. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And before I talk about this, I want to remind everyone if you have not listened to the episode about girlhood Juliet experiences something similar with which is exploring girlhood and I want to recommend if you haven't listened to that episode please go back to our Titus Andronicus series and listen to that because Juliet's identity as girl we could talk about it here Mm -hmm. but today we're focusing on on manhood but I want to just throw that out it's Titus Andronicus on gender give that a listen but now let's talk about manhood. Let's talk about what it was to be a boy, to be a man. And before we start this conversation, I want to acknowledge that the conversation we're having about manhood, masculinity, all of that is centered around the early modern English cis, hetero, elite, and middle rank man. And so that is where we are centering this conversation. I don't want to be exclusionary, but that is the essence of what is what this conversation is today. And we look forward to doing more queer and non-binary and inclusive conversations later. But for now, we're talking about the straight white man. Uh, <laughs> that's a really great way to put it. I would also say this is after a many discussions of non-cis white men in Shakespeare. We are going to now turn a second and take a look at what did it mean to be a white cis elite man in Shakespeare's time and how do we see that in Romeo and Juliet because of that our language today will be gendered because that is how the early modern white cis men talked about themselves (laughs) so here we go I used the journal article manhood the male body courtship and the household in early modern England by Anthony Fletcher Like I said, this article is from 97, I believe. Um, I would love to know if there's anything more current, but this is what I found as a very comprehensive exploration of that identity in early modern England. I'm going to talk about three main things. 
One is the medical conception of the male body. Two is schooling, early sexual experience, and courtship, becoming a man. And then three, adult maturity, which is primarily determined by marriage and being a householder, having an estate, having a home, and running that home. Now, patriarchy was never hegemonic, but always contained contradictions, compromises, and sources of instability. And we see those contradictions of patriarchy and manhood today, so not much has changed. Patriarchy was portrayed as the natural order of the world by men, while also inherently seeming unstable as it was reflected in a masculinity that always seemed threatened. We've talked about this before. There are advice books, literature, Mm -hmm. dramas, ballads, records relating to customs and behaviors. There are defamation cases. So in this world that is allegedly natural, in this order that's allegedly natural, Mm -hmm. early modern English men and writers and playwrights have anxieties surrounding upholding this social order. Yes. The gender ideology of the time was based on two premises. One was the Bible story of the creation of two sexes, Adam and Eve, as well as the current medical understanding of differences between men and women in biology. And we've talked a bit about that. There's genitalia. Men have a thing. Women have nothing. And there's this idea that, like, if you are a woman, you're not really a woman in the sense we know of it today. It's more like you're not a man, but you could grow um, penis and be a man. Yeah. And so that religious belief was that theme that women are inferior to men and indirect subordination to men. And this period from the 1590s to the 1640s saw the elaboration of a conduct book literature, which focused on male and female roles inside and beyond the household. In order for this social order to work, there was this early modern concept of gender hierarchy that opposed manhood to effeminacy, which was understood in the female terms of emotional weakness, softness, delicacy, self-indulgence. So manhood was opposite to womanhood, effeminacy. We kind of talked about this a little bit in the girlhood episode, that the idea of being a boy was not, it didn't start at fertilization. It didn't start when you were birthed. Gender was not determined at birth. The baby's penis merely indicated a potential for the attainment of a masculinity that needed to be socially inculcated. And this masculinity was nurtured through motherhood, how a child was treated during like the child rearing years. Mm -hmm. And at the same time as there is this nurturing of boy children, there's also this warning by the Puritans that you shouldn't over rear Self and you shouldn't self indulge the child during child rearing years because that will affect a boy's masculinity. So, a modern reference, I guess, would be Buster Bluth from Arrested Development being overmothered mm-hmm. and a lack of masculinity. That's a child rearing nursery ages. There's no real boy versus girl, but there is becoming boy. Mm-hmm. At around the age of six, boys from the gentry participated in a breaching ceremony, which we also talked about during the girlhood episode. Mm-hmm. Boys and girls in this time period are much more closely linked, and they're also much more closely linked to the identity of like a woman. So a man is superior to all. So this breaching ceremony is like the first step on the road to manhood for a boy. Mm-hmm. In addition to this cultural differentiation between boys and girls that starts around six 
Manhood was also separated from womanhood by the four humors. Men were believed to possess much greater heat and strength than females who were colder. And what this does, especially as boys are becoming men, is it provides society the opportunity to provide characteristics for man and woman. Sir Thomas Eliot wrote about the quote-unquote natural perfection of a man in 1531. He wrote that a man is, quote, fierce, hardy, strong in opinion, covetous of glory, desirous of knowledge, appetiting by generation to bring forth his semblance, unquote. The male body is medically seen as being strong and sexual and has an appetite and an indulgence, and this is the condition of the male body. So while this is an acceptance of like the male body, like the medical condition of a man, there also are contradictions because the time period also accepted that overindulging resorts men back to childhood. It makes them weak and effeminate. So if you are like oversexual or anything like that, threatened to make men effeminate. Mm-hmm. So that is the male body in early modern English culture. And medical books and conduct books were written in the time period to teach men how to socialize their bodies and socialize their minds. Mm -hmm. And men were taught in these books the benefits of self-control specifically. That was a really big part of early modern English society was how to control yourself and your urges, the effects and passions of the mind. So there was this huge emphasis on reason. The concept of a man using reason and um, not practicing self-control was seen as having a lack of reason. Mm -hmm. And this is important because early modern male children were seen to be imaginative. And when a boy grew up, he lost that imagination and replaced it with a reason. And this reason needed to be trained. And historians have discussed how the grammar schools of the 1560s to 1660s contribute to that male gender construction. In Shakespeare's time, when he was going to school, schools were confined to boys of both the gentry and the middling ranks. Mm -hmm. Their curriculum was rigid and it was classical in nature. Latin was the proper means of developing the crucial ability to reason during boyhood. And I didn't revisit this scene, but Sir Hugh Evans's Latin lesson in Merry Wives is that model. Mm -hmm. In addition to the grammar schools, Service and apprenticeships were also institutions that regulated boyhood and young manhood. Yeah, my reading also talked about the grammar schools as these like institutes where the like ideas of manhood were introduced and reinforced for young men and in a way were there to like counteract any sort of like too much mothering that had happened in In childhood, the childhood phase that you were talking about earlier, like explicitly set up to separate the boys from their mothers and their homes and immerse them in this culture of all men, humanist ideas, and focusing on reason. Reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as boys become young men, there is also this debate about bachelorhood versus marriage. Those are really topics of conversation for men. There are ballads and plays, like Think Much Ado, that reiterate the misogynistic stresses about women, households, and freedom. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion in popular culture is that unless a man was fortunate enough to find a virtuous woman, he should remain single. 
So once you leave grammar school, your apprenticeship, and you're going on and you're becoming a man, it's important to think about women, households, and freedoms, and whether you should engage in those elements of life. And we actually have sources that give us a window into what bachelors did in London during Shakespeare's time. Oftentimes, they visited alehouses, brothels, and playhouses. A lot of bachelors went to the theater. In contrast to the warnings against excess sex that I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. young manhood also considered accumulating sexual experience as necessary because adult manhood was competitive and you were oftentimes defined in terms of sexual assertiveness and performance. And that's another one of those contradictions. Don't have an excess of sex, but also it's very important to define your manhood through sex. Mm -hmm. And the author of this article, Fletcher, notes that this can be viewed in Shakespeare's bodiness. There's a lot of bodiness in his plays, as well as the 130 different terms that portray sexual intercourse as an act of male dominance in his plays. But there is another contradiction that while sex is normal for young men, love was seen as full of dangers, and love signified a return to the feminine world. Shakespeare scholar Stephen Orgel has argued that this fear was based on the fantasy of a medical reversal. Quote, the conviction that men can be turned back into women, losing the strength that enabled the male potential to be realized in the first place, unquote. When we were talking about men having a thing and women being nothing, just as easily as a woman could become a man, a man could revert and become a woman. So it was very um, malleable, this, this gender. Mm -hmm. And we see this love creating an effeminate man in Romeo and Juliet when Romeo cries out that he is unable to hurt Tybalt. His masculinity, his manhood, his aggressiveness has been lost because he's in love. Mm -hmm. And he says, he's talking about Juliet, quote, thy beauty has made me effeminate and in my temper softened valor's steel, unquote. And this was a popular notion because Robert Burton's 1682, The Anatomy of Melancholy, wrote of love as something that, quote, turns a man into a woman, unquote. Sex and love do come together in the journey of courtship. Uh, I'm not going to talk about courtship that much because, spoiler alert listeners, we will be discussing courtship and marriage in a later episode. But um, courtship was generally prolonged and was a collaborative exercise involving parents, relatives, and friends. Parents were facilitators and prompters in the upper and middling ranks. And young men got advice from their family. They got advice from their friends. They got advice from the moralists of the time. And there's actually a good piece of advice from the moralists who I'm generally critical of. But they advise men to pick a woman based on her character and mutual liking rather than her looks, which I thought was great advice. During the courtship process, a man, his manhood is constantly threatened depending on how the courtship is going. Some courtships were financial and stoic, and it was based on family relations, but some of them had emotional ups and downs, and some ended in rejection, and there are a lot of diary entries from the time period that detail the male perspective of the courtship journey, and men were challenged to keep their masculinity intact they didn't want to be made fools. They don't want to be rejected. And men were expected to take the assertive role in courtship and felt threatened by subjugation or humiliation that could follow 
depending on the outcome of the courtship. But the purpose of courtship was then the achievement of full adult maturity that was marked with the status of being a householder. The next aspect of manhood and social order revolved around a man's effectiveness as a husband, a father, and master within their household. This new social position gave a man new respectability and new obligations. He could now hold village office. And this was a space where a man could display his masculinity. And it was often surveilled by his community. So people were aware of what was going on or what they think was going on in the household. So for example, a man, he had to show control over his children, his servants, and his wife. And this could be very grave. And we can read about Samuel Pepys's understanding of the patriarchal role in his diary, where he records beating the footboy multiple times. Uh, this control over the house also is reflected in the husband being very nervous about um, his responsibility to satisfy his wife in bed or else being turned into a cuckold. In this time, cuckoldry was a reflection of a man's inability to control his wife. If he wasn't a cuckold, there also was this social obligation that if you're not the cuckold, you also aren't supposed to sleep with another woman and then contribute to her promiscuity and turn another man into a cuckold because that threatens society. Men during this time period, they would protect their honor against accusations of cuckoldry by bringing cases to the court against those who had defamed their sexual honor or the honor of their wives or insulted them directly. There are examples of court cases where these cuckoldry accusations occur. And then inside a marriage, there are conduct books that were written by mainly Puritan authors, and they posited a strongly authoritarian role for husbands. And this authoritarian role could be modified depending on the love to the wife. But what this means is that men's violence in the home was to some extent legally sanctioned. A legal treatise of 1632 said that men could beat their wives, but should do, quote, no bodily damage otherwise than appertains to the office of a husband for lawful and reasonable correction, unquote. So you can reprimand your wife physically, but don't draw blood, don't make it obvious. And the definition was also open-ended. This violence was a part of the reason, like that reason I was talking about that we've talked about with men owning self-control and owning reason, this violence against wives, women, was part of reason for the early modern man. And that's not to say that there wasn't a line that was drawn. There certainly was intervention by neighbors if a husband was out of line, but that, of course, was dependent on the neighbor's opinions about the violence, whether it was inside or outside the bounds of acceptability. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where my reading ended, was on a rather dire note about the downfalls of the reason for, for oh, men. yeah. So in conclusion, manhood was a learned and socialized experience that began during boyhood, and it was achieved through this idea of reason and self-control. And the two areas where men could exert their masculinity was by being husbands and becoming a householder. And yeah, and, and this was a, a design social order created that reinforced gender roles. And that's what a lot of men were aiming for through all of the reinforcements, the the child rearing, the grammar schools, the conduct books, plays, all of that. Mm -hmm. I wish I was ending my reading on a higher note, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to 
tag team in and look at a couple of ways that the idea of manhood expressed itself during the early modern period, what some of this quote-unquote reason meant, what did that look like out in the world in more detail, and then how was manhood expressed physically, as well as then uh, look at how do we see all of this pop up in Romeo and Juliet more explicitly. So as you mentioned, these early modern men, again, we're specifically talking about cis, elite, white men, had this sort of new code of civility that had recently been adopted. This was replacing the Middle Ages code of courtesy, which was kind of like, what does it mean to be an elite man in the medieval times and Middle Ages? What did it mean to be like the owner of a grand house, be a feudal lord? And that was about, you know, doing charity and welcoming people in, right? This new code is where they start to express these kind of extreme rules on behavior and what was appropriate behavior for a man as a way of, again, uh, reinforcing and also establishing men as, and again, white cis men who are already in the elite classes of society. How do they maintain that power? By creating some abject rules that they enforce on themselves and expect everyone else to just kind of get or not. Like, you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, you're obviously not part of the powerful elite. Mm -hmm. So one of these was specifically related to crying and when and where it was appropriate for men to cry. Um, we see this in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo is weeping in Friar Lawrence's cell after he has been banished, after the fatal feud with Tybalt, and he is yelled at to be a man and stop being so womanly. May I make a guess? And based on my reading, does it have to do with excess emotions? Yes, it does. Ugh. Basically, these codes for civility, in general, you can do things within moderation, but you can't do things to excess. Um, and there are some places where it's more appropriate to do something than others. So medieval society, again, was more permissive and tolerant of male displays of emotion, especially male tears in public. And um, we have like court cases and depictions of like when Cardinal Wolseley lost his job and how he cried. And it's when people are writing about it, they're writing about it as just simple fact. And he cried, not saying things like, oh, yeah, he really cried. There. Yeah, like, there's no judgment placed on it. A lot of tear. There's no judgment placed on it. Exactly. Acceptable places to cry based on writings of the time in the early modern period seem to be moments of emotional intensity, tears of joy, specifically religious or patriotic joy, and in religious penance or devotion. Outside of that, keep your crying to yourself in private is essentially the advice that's given. Advice that is given and the expectation that is set. Mm -hmm. Tears of laughter especially are very vulgar because laughter, laughing too much could also be too much. And if you are in self-control, you have control over all of your emotions. Um, so you're never going to get to the point of cry laughing. Yeah. Um, this also ties into, we talked about during the Twelfth Night series, that there was this kind of ongoing debate about grief between Catholics, Protestants, and 
the Puritans of how much time should be spent in mourning after someone's death. Like what's the appropriate... What's the appropriate way to grieve um, a death? Yeah. And again, in this time, there's writings that say things like, well, of course, like a man can cry at a good friend's death or at his wife's death, but maybe not at the funeral. Hmm. <laughs> maybe feel free to cry at home later. Uh-huh. Very stoic. There's writings that actually say, because stoicism comes a little bit back into fashion because in the grammar schools they're reading all of this classical literature that stoicism is a little bit too far in the opposite direction mm. so you should be able to show emotion it's just about hitting that exact right appropriate amount. time and degree yeah like thomas cromwell is criticized at this time because he was famous for crying when he spoke and people were like he's faking it they're crocodile tears there's no way that he'd be that like crying about like anything or crying like in impassioned speech or in politics was really seen as like not a manly thing to do but again like of course you're gonna get a little bit choked up when a friend dies or there's someone who writes about like queen elizabeth seeing queen elizabeth and how could you not if you are truly a patriotic englishman not cry when you see her for the first time not get a little mm -hmm. bit choked up like that's mm -hmm. okay mm-hmm so a man will know, an elite man who is properly masculine will just know the right amount of tears in the appropriate situations. Sometimes zero, sometimes a little bit. Never over the top, though. Another hallmark of masculinity in the early modern period was the beard. And that specifically, one, is one of those dividing lines between the phase of boy and man. And uh, Will Fisher in his article, The Renaissance Beard Masculinity in Early Modern England, suggests that, quote, facial hair often conferred masculinity. The beard made the man, unquote. Fisher notes that virtually all men depicted in portraits from the English Renaissance and early modern period have beards. He specifically notes that in an exhibition at the Tate Gallery in London called Dynasties Painting in Tudor and Jacobean England, 1530 to 1630, there were 60 modern, uh, early modern portraits of men that were displayed, and of those, 55 had some sort of facial hair going on. To further this notion of beards really making the man, another collection of portraits, Roy Strong's Tudor and Jacobean Portraits, has approximately 350 portraits of men in a two-volume work. And of those 350 portraits that feature men, over 320 have subjects with facial hair oh wow so yeah it's a pretty safe thing to say that like 90 percent of men who were getting their portraits made either had beards or instructed their portrait artists to put a beard on them yeah as a symbol of their manhood interesting and this doesn't have to do with romeo and juliet but i'm thinking of in much ado yes when beatrice is talking about like she can't have a bearded man because she doesn't want to kiss a beard <laughs> yeah yeah that quote came up in uh oh, okay was that quote okay. as well so it's amazing that you also <laughs> flipped to that uh-huh beatrice depicts this sort of idea of he without a that doesn't have a beard is like too oh, young yeah a boy yeah but also she's like creating this like man who kind of doesn't exist because she's like well and then i don't want to kiss a guy with a beard i'd rather like lie in the woolen so yeah beards were also linked to 
the ability to reproduce because beards would be a visual, a visual cue that someone has gone through puberty. As you mentioned, an aspect of early modern manhood was the idea of being a father. So how do you know that someone can potentially even be a father? They have a beard. Mm -hmm. You're probably not um, inspecting their genitals in a public space. Right. Hopefully. Right. (laughs) Beards were one of the ways that men were distinct from boys and also from eunuchs. Although it is possible for a eunuch to have a beard, just as it is possible for people who were assigned female or raised as women to have beards in this time as it is today. Mm-hmm. Beards specifically for men set them apart from the other genders and were a sign of virility and manhood, like being a man. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense because like you need to give a visual cue mm-hmm. to separate like if women, boys and girls are all like more or less the same gender underneath man Mm -hmm. like you got to create that illusion of some sort of symbol yeah what what puts man on this far end of what was essentially a gender spectrum that there's woman there's man and then in between there's boy children girl children eunuchs and where that man one has a beard (laughs) We can see beards being used in Shakespeare, both like in Midsummer. There's talk about Flute can't play Thisbe. He has a beard coming in. In Macbeth, Banquo sees the witches as bearded women and says that like he would think that they're women, but their beards, beards say otherwise. Say other. He's confused because of their beards. And Fisher does note that you know bearded women did exist in the early modern period, and there is there is literature that talks about the difference between well. A man's beard is like this, and a woman's beard is like this. And if a woman has a beard, it's different, okay? Yeah, yeah. Arbitrary differences. Yeah, and it was one of those arbitrary differences, or just completely misunderstandings of how beards work, is that shaving a man's beard was emasculating. It was making him more like a boy, more like a woman. Whereas women's, if a woman with a beard has a beard... It was thought to be because she tried shaving. So, yeah. That sounds like another contradiction of sorts. Wrap wrap your brain around that one. Yeah. And then beards are mentioned in all but four of Shakespeare's plays, as we're kind of circling around beards in the theater. They are used to depict men versus boys versus women as well. So the boy actors, in specifically in boys' companies, would use prosthetic beards to portray men and would be fisher argues just as much accepted and in drag as they would be when they were playing women if they were having to play older men like they're performing this gender that they are not because they are boys right so that's a little bit of what masculinity kind of looked like in shakespeare's time again that self-control if you were an elite man One thing that I forgot to say earlier was that the elite men did not put that, like, self-control expectation on lower classes. So lower class individuals were not expected to be as in control of their emotions as elite men were. Yeah. And I'm assuming as well that, like, the middling ranks Mm -hmm. also had an expectation of self-control and reason 
because they were part of that grammar school institution. And probably in an attempt to fit in with the elites if yeah. they were interacting, right? So in the attempt to appear more elite, yeah, they would probably also have this expectation of self-control. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, having a beard. Fisher argues that it was more of a primary sex characteristic to the Renaissance mind rather than we now have this like hierarchy that puts genitalia at the top of like primary sex characteristics mm. and then secondary sex characteristics beards somewhere lower in the hierarchy but fisher argues that for the people of the elizabethan and jacobean era the beard was right up there with genitalia in terms of being able to prove that you were a man yeah that makes sense if you said that all but four shakespeare plays contain this symbolism or of a beard at least yeah. discuss the symbolism discuss of a beard, beard. Yeah. yeah and when they don't like Coriolanus specifically is a male tragic male figure in Shakespeare who is written as not having a beard he does other like super heroic acts that demonstrate his masculinity to like overcome the fact that he doesn't have a beard we can see masculinity play out in Romeo and Juliet in a few ways one it is a hyper patriarchal masculine world like the city of Verona exists in a hyper masculine hyper patriarchal regime that at the very top of that is Prince Aeschylus who is he is um, kind of like an ultimate father figure well that makes sense because yeah. he is the parent of the household is like who started this mm -hmm. and here are the punishments and here are what you're going to do moving forward yeah Capulet and Montague he is very Author authoritative he's an authoritarian figure and he is able to both create establish law and order as well as enforce it so he is also effective in his masculine actions of creating the system of the order that benefits him as a man right mm -hmm. in verona there's no escape from this masculine regime as well as no like masculine satisfaction so we have characters who follow desire to try and achieve some sort of satisfaction and it doesn't work out it doesn't get them out of this regime of masculinity that they are inside of and then we see specifically romeo is in this kind of like strategy of a masculine performance even though he's not directly involved in the overt masculine aggression that other young men in the play are and he's trying to stay outside of that mm -hmm. he is trying to like create a strategic masculine performance where he can stay out of the aggression but that doesn't work for him <laughs> no it doesn't so he's trying to create this alternative masculinity where he's still a man but not incited into action and a lot of the play vacillates on being men taking action in the feud mm -hmm. outside of Aeschylus who again is able to both create the law and order of society as well as enforce it every other man in the play is according to Robert Applebaum's Standing to the Wall, The Pressures of Masculinity in Romeo and Juliet, every other man in the play is, quote, clinging to their varied, unresolved, and inadequate masculinities, unquote. So while the structure of Verona is very stable, the internal masculinities of the men that are featured is very unstable. Each one has their own thing that they are grappling with. That makes sense because Romeo, you just talked about Romeo, Tybalt is hyper-aggressive. Mm -hmm. Mercutio becomes hyper-aggressive in his conflict with 
Tybalt, Mm -hmm. uh, Lord Capulet, when he's commanding Juliet either marry Paris or be sent out on the streets and be removed from the family. Like, Mm -hmm. all of that is personal for them, whatever leads them to this, like, aggression or this unreason, I guess. Yeah, Lord Montague is seen as possibly very much older. His wife's holding him back from joining the aggression um so he does not have control over his wife and he does not have control over his child because you know romeo's not really speaking to his parents right then as you mentioned capulet capulet gives autonomy to juliet to like one wait for marriage and then you know have a little bit more of a say in who she marries and then when he decides that she'll marry paris and she says no album writes that essentially capulet gives into quote what amounts to ineffectual hysteria he cannot manipulate this system of deference and courtesy through which he has otherwise pledged himself to manage his social and familial affairs, unquote. So, like, he gets so frustrated because the system isn't working that he has the explosion of violence that we see. Mm-hmm. Even the friar, who is possibly the most, like, fatherly figure for Romeo, is also an ineffective, quote-unquote, man in terms of masculinity because he is inherently for the the definition of early modern masculinity flawed because he's celibate he's not going to produce children so he can't actually be a father and he's going to run from action at the end of the play yeah. in the tomb you're in the tomb. yeah mm-hmm. yep exactly um and he is a man who you know just makes the wrong choices he fails to achieve his objectives and brings down the young lovers in the center of the play with his failure So, again, Applebaum notes that the father figures in this play are ineffectual. The son figures who, yes, Romeo, Tybalt, Mercutio, but also the servants like Gregory and Samson are self-destructive. And the only thing that resolves this cycle is the sacrifice of Romeo's masculinity and his self for law and order to be resolved and specifically Aeschylus's law and order to finally be maintained. I would guess from this, then Romeo probably dies still a boy. I mean, I guess he got married, but he doesn't have... It's it's interesting. He's in between. He's always in between. I'm so glad you talked about that because <laughs> I have some facts and figures. I looked up just how many times both boy and man are said in Romeo and Juliet and in what contexts. And, well, it is believed that they have consummated their, so they have consummated their marriage. Yeah. However, yes, they have not produced a child um, and they're unable to. So yeah, Romeo would still be kind of ineffective in achieving manhood, true manhood. And he hasn't, he is not a householder, which is another requirement. Yes. The way they got married is currently precluding him from being a householder because they did it in secret. They didn't go through courtship rituals. I think it is interesting to note that boy is said 11 times in the play. Capulet calls Tybalt boy twice. Tybalt calls Romeo boy twice. And Romeo calls Paris boy when they're in the tomb and Romeo doesn't know that it's Paris yet. Other references are to servants, with the exception of one, which is uh, about Cupid. Mm -hmm. Mercutio calls him the love boy. Mm -hmm. 
So boy is primarily used to put these young men in their place that they are not yet men. Tybalt specifically does not see Romeo as a man. Mm -hmm. He is still a boy. And Capulet does not see Tybalt as a man. He is a boy. Mm -hmm. It's also used as like an insult, but like, I'm the man, you're the boy. Like, you need to follow my... Yeah, my authority. My authority is essentially what Capulet is saying to Tybalt to prevent him from disrupting the party. Mm -hmm. In contrast, man or men is said 85 times. <laughs> Nurse calls Paris a man like four times, three of them like in the same line. Benvolio, Romeo, and Mercutio sometimes call each other man, but that makes a little bit of sense. If they're all in this transitional period and trying to be more grown up than they are, you might like call your friend, like, dude or bro. Right. Capulet mocks Tybalt with, you'll be the man. Like, you start a brawl in my party, yeah, sure, you'll be a man. Because you mm -hmm. did, yeah, did you a violence. Man for... Ooh, big man. Yeah. And then Romeo is first called a man after he is married by both Friar and Nurse. So yeah, he would, like, although age-wise not a man, he has started on that, he's taken a step towards manhood in the early modern context. And that parallels the shift in the language that's used for Juliet as well from our Titus episode, mm -hmm. where like the word that is used for her shifts as well once they've gone through this step of transitioning from girl and boyhood to woman and manhood. Yeah. A woman and manhood that they are still too young to have and don't get to keep. Definitely, yeah. 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 Um, because at the end of the day, they're not able to show, Romeo especially is not able to show the restraint and the self-control that a man would when he learns of Juliet's death. Yeah. And Juliet is not able to demonstrate her self-control either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they die. <laughs> yeah. So I think what I'm gathering from the analysis of Romeo and Juliet is like manhood, masculinity, boyhood is really rooted in Romeo and Juliet in self-control, reason, and excess. Like those are the themes for how mm -hmm. you identify or how the characters view the other characters because of like Romeo's excessive love and his excessive crying and then mm -hmm. his excessive aggression towards Tybalt. Tybalt has so much excessive aggression. And so I think that like, that's like the crux of manhood in at least our discussion is what I'm getting is like, yeah, those three aspects are huge in addition to like the life stages. Yeah, which reflects the societal pressures on elite men at the time, which as we know, because Shakespeare, he had elite patrons, like he would have been quite aware of the pressures that were on elite men to be men. Yeah. But also Shakespeare went to grammar school. And so even mm -hmm. if he was a working class playwright, theater owner, he also is knowledgeable about the scaffolding that was being used for the elites and the gentry. He was still part of a prominent family in Stratford-upon-Avon. And again, like the idea of like him as an upstart crow is more of like a elite class looking at somebody who is coming from a not low class, but a middle class who is achieving things that only elites should be achieving. Only people who went to Oxford and Cambridge should be able to achieve. So 
Shakespeare, yes, went to grammar school, likely taught grammar school, and would have been very well aware of some of these codified behaviors and examines them throughout his work, but especially in Romeo and Juliet. We have masculinity kind of taken apart and reassembled and Mm -hmm. examined, and ultimately the conclusion that it comes to is the only way to escape this regime is death, but it also restores the order of the regime. Yeah. 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 That star-crossed lover sacrifice. Romeo doesn't have to try to adhere to this anymore, but the rest of society falls in line with it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I am gathering, and I don't know where the conversation about Romeo being an adult came from, because I never read it that way. I've never read it that way either, but I just wanted to address it as something that like crops up on the internet where people go, oh, my teacher said that. And... It's not a textually based opinion whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And through the lens of this work on manhood and the male body and self-control reason excess, it seems like this is all like overtly telling the audience that because we never hear Romeo's age. Yes. We only know Juliet's age, but it sounds like this is a very good, very good way to see him as a teenage boy transitioning from boyhood into into manhood and that is how early modern masculinity and the expectations of what it meant to be a man in shakespeare's time show up in romeo and juliet thank you for listening i'm courtney smith and i'm elise sharp this is shakespeare anyone thank you so much for listening to shakespeare anyone Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King Lear, Act 3, Scene 2, spoken by Lear. I am a man more sinned against than sinning.